to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brent Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we resume our office hours faculty spotlight with a conversation with Ed Freeman. Ed is a member of the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship faculty. Uh, he is the Olson Professor of Business Administration here at the Darden School of Business, and he's also the Academic Director for Darden's Institute for Business and Society. He's a very busy guy. He was very generous to take some time out of his schedule to talk more about his background, how he came to Darden, the work that he has done on stakeholder theory. As you may know, Ed really founded that idea. And so it was a pleasure to catch up with him and talk more about the work that he has been doing and the traction that stakeholder theory has gained uh, in the marketplace over the over the past 40 years. Uh, this is a great conversation for anyone considering Darden, any format. Um, this is essential listening. So I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. This is my interview, Professor Ed Freeman. Ed, uh, tell us your story. Who are you and what's your background? Well, um, I don't know how much you want to know. I, I did a uh, PhD in philosophy. And uh, so I was looking around for something to do because there were no jobs for people with PhDs and in philosophy. I had grown up on a dirt farm in Georgia and uh, I was very young. I was in my early 20s and a guy on my dissertation committee said, you know, you, you're interested, do, do a postdoc. And I thought postdoc good, you know, I could make money at that. And, 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 and I said, where? And he said, Pittsburgh, a great philosophy department. He said, but you're interested in decision-making and that stuff. You should go to Wharton. And Honest to God, I said, what's Wharton? I'd never heard of it. I didn't know anything about it. You know, this would have been 1975 or so. And uh, he said, it's a business school. And, and I, I didn't know anything about that. I'm thinking maybe it's typing in shorthand. You know, I, I don't, I'm literally clueless. And I said, is it a good one? You know, and he said, yeah, yeah, it's one of the best. One of the best. I said, yeah, okay. Where is it? because I didn't know. And he said, Philadelphia, University of Pennsylvania. I was at Washington University in St. Louis. And uh, I said, well, you know, I might be interested because my girlfriend was going to city planning school at Penn. Uh, and so I went to Wharton for an interview, got hired and in, uh, in a research position uh, was very lucky that one day, about a year or so in, my boss comes to me and said, ah, you know, you're a, you, you've, you've thought about a lot of stuff. Uh, you want to take this stakeholder idea, see if you can do something with it, because no one's ever really done much with it. And I thought, yeah, I can maybe do something with it. And so that led to, you know, writing papers and a book and teaching and moving to the faculty at Wharton and uh, that that really gave me a, a you know a pretty good uh, start. Uh, Wharton wasn't the place for me. I, I didn't do the sort of research that a lot of people did there. Um, and uh, University of Minnesota came along and offered me tenure, which was a big deal for academics. I was still pretty young, and um, so I moved to Minnesota. We spent three winters there. I knew some people at Darden. Uh, again, Minnesota was the sort of place, again, I'm not going to diss either of those two great institutions, <clears throat> but 
you know, I cared about teaching and cared about students, and that was not their top priority. I think that's the nicest way I've ever said it. Um, and I came to Darden, and the students were in the center, and I, I thought the the second class I saw, first one wasn't very good, but the second class I saw, I thought, this is a place I, I want to teach. Uh, and I've been here 35 years. Uh, I think I've written... 35 or 40 books. I don't really know. And a couple of hundred papers and um, have had thousands of students uh, and tried to spread the stakeholder idea around the world. Uh, not many people cared for the first 15 or 20 years uh, and they seem to care now. So that, that's, that's, that's been a very positive thing. You know, I, I've often said, Brett, I, I have the best job in the world. Uh, and the reason I have the best job in the world is um, we have the best students. Um, best here, students who, who come, who want to work, uh, who know that ethics is important. Uh, and, you know, the, I, I can't imagine uh, a better gig, quite honestly. That, that, that's probably more than you wanted to know, but. All good. Um, I want to go back a little ways, though. You you have a PhD in philosophy. I was watching your yeah. TEDx Charlottesville talk, yeah. and you relayed this joke that your dad oh, yeah. shared with you that, uh, yeah. well, that's good. They just opened a lot of philosophy factories out by the highway. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, he didn't actually say that. I made that up, but I thought it was a pretty good. It was a pretty good joke. You know, a good joke. As it was a good good joke. What the the actual story was. Uh, my brother-in-law, who, who did an undergrad degree in philosophy, uh, his father, my father-in-law, allegedly said, what are you going to do, open a philosophy store? You know? Um, but look, philosophy just taught me how to think. That's, that's all. And the only reason I've been able to make a contribution to management theory with developing stakeholder, uh, the stakeholder idea, is because I, I didn't know this was supposed to be controversial. I thought the idea that what businesses do is they create value and sometimes destroy it, but they try to create value for customers, suppliers, employees, communities, and the people with the money. Uh, as I'm trying to figure out what this business thing is, that became pretty clear to me that that's what they did. Uh, and I didn't realize that was some radical idea. I thought it was common sense. So when I wrote this book that's now got, I don't know, 45,000 academic citations, you know, I, I, I thought nobody, you know, this is common sense. This is kind of a thing that need to write it, but, you know, so what? Uh, my wife re read it. Uh, by this time, my wife was the girlfriend. So that we, we've been married for 44 years. So that, that part of the Wharton journey worked out, um, you know, by, by this time. Um, Maureen has gone back to get her M MBA at Wharton. And so she, she reads the draft of this and goes, well, you know, honey, I don't know that you're going to be able to make a living at this. This is just too much common sense, you know? So I, I, I you know, that, that turned out okay too. I didn't even think the stakeholder idea was the most interesting idea in the book. I thought the most interesting idea was the idea that companies uh, uh, have a purpose that that rather than say uh, what a lot of consultants uh, like Peter Drucker and others have said, you know, what business are you in? 
That was a lot of a uh, lot of consulting companies from McKinsey, BCG, Bain. They they all, you know, were sort of famous for saying. Uh, what what business are you in? Well, we're in the can business. No, you're in the container business. And there's a whole whole lot of stuff around that. Uh, and I thought the most interesting idea in the book was that's not that's not the best question. The best question is what do you stand for? What do you stand for will determine what business you're in. Or there should be a connection between those things. Now, again, it's pretty straightforward that purpose matters to strategy. Uh, in the early 80s, that was not an accepted idea. And so when I wrote about this, something I called enterprise strategy, uh, trying to speak to people who did strategy, uh, there was yet one more bid yawn. Uh, so I think I'm, you know, I'm pretty good at producing. Some, somebody said, well, you're always way ahead of your time. Well, that may be, but I, 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 you know, it's still a little tricky to write stuff and people go, yeah, not really. Um, and especially to write it where I'm, I'm saying, look, I didn't make this stuff up. I, this is how I see what's going on in business and the people I talk to, which is, you know, I talk to thousands of business people pretty much every year. Um, and, and I don't know enough to make stuff up. Uh, so, you know, um, I, I'm, I'm old now, uh, but still doing the same thing, you know, and still doing the same thing in part because of the energy I get from, uh, from our students. Well, I want to pick up on something that's come up in the Q&A and it was in the advanced yeah. questions. So you published uh, stakeholder theory book that you're, you're referencing in the, in yeah. the early 80s, I think 84. Yeah. Yeah. And so here we are, 2021, it's the sort of arc uh, of time. Yeah. Um, when you published it initially, this yawn, and here we are, you know, 2021, stakeholder theory, very in vogue, business roundtables come along yeah. and said, this is the framework. What is it yeah. like? You're talking almost 40 years of time. <laughs> uh, what, what, what has changed so significantly? Well, I... I... <laughs> Just a quick story. Uh, one of the first papers was a paper called Stakeholder Man Man Management, uh, which we wrote. Uh, Jim Emsoff, my boss and mentor, we wrote it in 1977. I, I just found an old copy of it. And uh, we sent it to a journal to be listed. In those days, you had to get papers listed because there's no internet you know, working papers. So the editor calls and says, yeah, we're, we're going to list your paper, uh, no problem, but there's a horrible typo in the title. And I said, what? Uh, and he said, well, it says something stakeholder management. We, we know you mean stockholder, but we can change it. Don't worry. <laughs> and I, you know, I said, uh, please don't. So when you start there <laughs> and then the business roundtable comes out and says, hey, you know, the days of, of, of shareholder primacy are over. Um, that, that, that announcement failed. Nobody caught my fist kind of pumping in the air uh, on, on camera. Now, you know, maybe I had a little to do with that. Not, not, not with the roundtable. This was a time at, at one point I was an advisor to the roundtable, round but I haven't been for the past uh, few years. 
Um, but the statement was very compatible with pretty much everything I, I had written. And the BlackRock CEO, uh, uh, Larry Fink, who came out and said, look, if you're gonna, if we're going to invest in you, you need a purpose. You need to think about your stakeholders and how you create value. And you need to worry about societal issues. You know, uh, why, why did all this happen? Look, I really think the the turning point was the global financial crisis. You're trying to uh, maximize shareholder value and you lever up 30 to one and that it doesn't take the genius to figure out that's real easy to come undone. Uh, And um, it did. And so I think there was a, a realization much broader that that's not gonna work. Furthermore, if you look at the societal issues and here just in the US, but they're literally similar issues all over the world, uh, the violence between ethnic groups or in US, the police violence around things like George Floyd. If you uh, look at the, the inequality uh, the inequality gap, and that inequality gap is is true all over the world. It has been increasing uh, all over the world, and if if you and and in many cases it's racial or ethnic. Uh, if you look at gender discrimination uh, and how that works, and you think about the the now there's no place to hide because everybody's got an iPhone, and you can see the effects of of all this stuff. Uh, I think what's Nobody's trying to, and then, and then you put a pandemic on top of that. <clears throat> I, I haven't heard anybody argue, hey, you know, you know how we're going to get out of this? We are going to double down on shareholder value. I mean, it's not going to work. Business is a societal institution. Uh, it's an important one. Uh, and, and it has to take its place in society as dealing with these big issues. It doesn't have to, every business doesn't have to deal with everything, but business people have to understand what are the societal issues that affect it, that it can do something about. And so rather than just think about market forces, it has to, every business has to think about market forces. Yes, that's important. And societal forces. And you can't do that in the shareholder uh, primacy model. So I, I think the people said, well, this stakeholder thing seems like a pretty good framework to think about this. You know, and there are forces like the World Economic uh, Forum and others that have that have tried to, you know, push push this stuff along uh, as well. Uh, but it's pretty been pretty amazing, quite on, honestly, to watch the world sort of come around to something I thought was blindingly obvious 40 years ago. I want to I stay with um, this idea of, sort of economic inequity um, yeah. because there, there is a lot of conversation right now about capitalism and mm-hmm. whether or not capitalism can actually lift all, all people. Um, yeah. You know, the, the Churchill quote about capitalism is, is terrible until you think about all the other sort of economic systems and then maybe it doesn't look, look so bad, but we, we are in this moment where um, capitalism feels very, very challenging to kind of think about 
Well, you know, how, how do you make it equitable? Yeah. So a couple of things. First of all, the father of capitalism, Adam Smith, uh, never used the word. Uh, you can't find it in any of his any of his writings. And he had two important books, The Wealth of Nations. But he also wrote a book called The Theory of Moral Sentiments, in which Adam Smith lays out that if people in business don't have a sense of justice, markets don't work very well. And he understood that way back in the 18th century. Um, and the person we get the word capitalism from is, is, is Marx. And, and that's a little bit like, you know, having the enemy, uh, you know, design the uniform uh, of the other team, uh, right? So capitalism has a lot of, a, a lot of, it's got a big, long train of baggage behind it. So I like to think about business and you can use capitalism if you want. I kind of like stakeholder capitalism, but, 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 you know, in thinking about business and there've been lots of uh, proposals for reform over the last 10 years. Uh, so, I mean, I've made some, a lot of people have made, made some, there's, there's conscious capitalism, uh, a, a book by two friends of mine, John Mackey and Raj Sisodia, which is great if you haven't read, read that, uh, and a group called Conscious Capitalism Inc. I'm, I'm actually um, missing the board meeting right now to talk to all of you. Uh, and uh, there's inclusive capitalism, there's connected capitalism, there's capitalism 2.0, maybe 3.0, there's uh, even Wall Street's hitting into the act with impact investing and ESG, uh, renewed interest in old ideas like corporate social responsibility, corporate philanthropy, corporate sustainability, uh, etc. And I, in the waning days of the Obama administration, uh, I, I was invited to the White House to uh, be a part of a meeting run by Tom Perez, who was the Secretary of Labor. Uh, and then head of the Democratic Party of the last four years. And uh, Tom's idea was, of course, everybody thought they were going to be there another four years, which turned out not to be true. But uh, his thought was, what can government do to sort of speed up these reforms, uh, or at least not screw them up? And, 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 and the other question he had was kind of, what's the, what's the right brand? Now, Department of Labor was pretty much interested in kind of putting employees at the center, right, and having good jobs. My own view of that was if you put any one stakeholder at the center, the world might be better if you put employees at the center, but it's it's not going uh, it, to – it's still going to be screwed up, right? So I, I sat there at this meeting. There were 40 or 50 people, and these were the people who, who were the – the, the, the proponents of these I, I ideas. So it was, a, it was a pretty elite group. I felt like a total imposter. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just thought, I, I'm not sure this is the right question. Uh, I think it might be a better question to ask, what are the four or five really critical ideas that whatever, whatever the brand is, whatever the final reforms are, you got to deal with these four or five I, I, ideas. And so uh, Bobby Parmar, who's one of my colleagues uh, here at Darden uh, and a professor of the students absolutely cherish, uh, and Kirsten Martin, 
who's a former doctoral student here and is a chair professor at Notre Dame now, we decided to write a book. And the book is called The Power of And, Responsible Business Without Trade-Offs. And the basic idea here is that, look, you, you can't substitute, just think about purpose. It's purpose and profits. And most of the conversations, one or the other, you know, so it's uh, five ideas, purpose and profits, stakeholders and shareholders, thinking about business as a societal institution and a market institution, thinking about people as fully grown up human beings, not just self-interested uh, economic maximizers, and thinking about ethics and business. And the argument is whatever the reforms are, you got to deal with these five things. And, and what we do in the power of and is uh, give, you know, a hundred or so examples of how companies are doing this. Um, I am extremely optimistic that there is a revolution going on in the way that we think about business. It's a conceptual revolution and business people are changing the world. One of the nice things about teaching here is that uh, we don't spend any time uh, trying to convince students that ethics is important. If you don't think ethics is important in business, you probably shouldn't come here. Uh, and a lot of our students are, are trying to start and design businesses that, that deal with those sort of five, those five ands there. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, Brett, but uh, totally. I, uh, the, I, the book came out in 2020, uh, right, just in time for the pandemic, and therefore, all, all it turns out, all I was happy to learn this: all business books uh, in 2020 fell with a big thud from the press. So uh, I may have to figure out yet another way to write to write about this argument. There's still time. We, we have time to read uh, still. Um, and I appreciate you walking through all of that. Um, and so one of the things I want to pick up on, it's, it's come yeah. up here in the, in the Q&A, yeah. is, all right, we live in this time. Some of the most interesting ethical questions seem to be bubbling kind of around technology and how quickly yeah. technology is changing. There's a question in the Q&A of like stakeholder theory in this like hyper digital age. How, yeah. how, if you were a tech company or you look at some of these tech issues that are coming along, how does stakeholder theory help us understand these things? Yeah, that's a great question, uh, Beetle, I think, who, who asked it. Um, well, uh, again, I, I, th I think the tech companies have to do a much better job of engaging with their stakeholders, engaging in the sense so that, that they they're not taken by surprise. Uh, when you have the effects that you have and you kind of face into those. Uh, there's some effects of things that you can't uh, predict. But if you're engaged with your customers and suppliers and your employees and the communities, you're going to have a much better I idea uh, about how these things are going to affect you. Uh, and so the idea of the lone entrepreneur sitting in Silicon Valley with a big pile of money from a VC figuring out uh, how to create this science fiction world uh, 
uh, I think doesn't work very well. Uh, another one of my uh, professors who the, uh, or, or colleagues who the students love, Sarah Sarasvathy, uh, has a really different idea called effectuation about how businesses actually work. That you start with the relationships that you have. Um, and I think even more that we need to think about entrepreneurship, not just as the unicorns, but as how we, how we create businesses that make our lives better um, sort of across the technological spectrum. And the technology uh, is, a, is a means. Now, has the technology in some sense outstripped our ability to think about ethics? Uh, I think the answer to that is yeah, and, and that's a dangerous thing. Uh, we, we talked about that in our ethics class. Uh, last year, I used a short story called iRobot, which is an Isaac Asimov story about a robot who dreams. Uh, and, and, and what do you do about, about, uh, about that? We also do a real case on uh, um, self, self-driving cars uh, and the complexities of those things. Um, we've got to get better in society at having conversations about stuff that, you know, we don't know what the consequences are. For instance, I had a lot of conversations with my grandmother about ethics. She was a very important figure to me. We had no conversations about whether or not safe abortion on demand uh, was right or wrong. Why? It was just wasn't feasible. I mean, nobody ever, nobody thought about that. The technology didn't exist. We had no conversations about should I be able to download somebody else's songs from a point-to-point -point network? We had no conversations about artificial intelligence. We had no conversations about end-of-life technology and where life ends. Um, and technology means it hasn't it hasn't invalidated what I learned from my grand grandmother. It's just made those conversations about how do we apply that? Do we need to change some of those va values or do we need to change some of the technologies? It's made those conversations urgent. And the, the tension is that urgent conversations in a society where the, the sort of civic conversation, the, the political conversation is broken is are, are very hard to do. Uh, and that's one of the greatest challenges for business people. How, how do they take a role in those conversations, especially in a world in which the dominant story of business is not necessarily stakeholder oriented. The dominant story of business throughout the world is, look, it's just about the money. It's, uh, uh, it's a story I've called the business sucks story. Uh, and, you know, uh, there are a lot of ways to illustrate this, but it, it, one way would be to say, look, if I were to uh, say to you, Brett, that uh, I got a real ethics issue we got to deal with. I would ask the uh, participants here, how many of you just thought, oh, he wants to tell us about somebody who invented something really cool that makes our lives better. 
my guess is no one thought about that, you know, but come on. I mean, you, what you thought about was, uh, uh, oh, something terrible ha happened. There's somebody screwed up. Right. But, you know, if, if, if business gets the credit for the bad stuff and they should get, take responsibility for that, then you need credit for the good stuff too. Uh, and so I think making this conversation come alive about ethics and business, not as a set of thou shalt nots, but what, what we try and do in our ethics core courses here is say to the students, what we want you to do is to figure out a set of questions that you want to ask about all of these issues. And it doesn't have to be the same set of questions that I use. I'll tell you the ones I do, but uh, that's, that's, your, that's your task here. And actually, that's the final exam in ethics. And we tell people that pretty much the first day. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy, it just means no surprise. Well, Ed, one of the things you talked about really compellingly here is the ethic, ethical emphasis at, at Darden. You know, it's in the core curriculum in the first year. Um, and one, one of the sort of lines of questioning that's coming up in the Q&A is, you know, what's unique about, about Darden? Where did this come from, this sort of ethical emphasis? Because you know, some people, when you say business, business ethics, and they think it's oxymoronic, to your point about... Oxymoron, uh, must be a short course. I didn't yeah. know business had any... Mm -hmm. I was in a bar in Copenhagen and somebody asked me what I did. I said, I teach business ethics, a theoretical subject is, it isn't a, you know, uh, I, I think I've heard them all, uh, you know, and, and that's part of the problem. As long as the joke is there, we got work to do, you know, uh, Darden, Darden was, was started, uh, Colgate Darden himself was a former governor of Virginia, um, you know, had a, a very strong stand uh, in his life about ethics. Uh, I, I never met him. Uh, he was uh, passed long before I did, but I, but I did meet uh, his uh, widow, Miss Connie, when I came here many years ago. And she was about 200 years old, I think, but, but she was terrific and, and told me about those, those things. In the 1960s, long before anybody else did this, uh, the Olson family, uh, who started the Chesapeake Company, uh, gave us uh, a very generous uh, grant to, to start the Olson Center uh, for Applied Ethics, to put ethics and business together. Uh, so uh, by the time I came in the mid 80s, there'd been a 20 year history of people putting together business and ethics. So I, I thought I'd, I'd died and gone to heaven because I I found a place that you weren't constantly arguing, hey, wait, ethics is important. You know, uh, ethics was seen <clears throat> in those days as, as one of the background disciplines of business. Uh, and we started a, a required graded core, first year course. Um, we, uh, we often will teach together uh, joint class classes with, marketing or accounting or strategy or finance or uh, quantitative analysis or communications. Uh, that's the sort of thing that, 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 that happens at Darden uh, much more than it does at other schools. Well, the two other schools I taught at, it never happened, but, but so it's much more uh, here. Um, 
And we have, I would say, in addition to the required course, a, a number of uh, electives uh, that get people to, you know, deal with issues like the technology uh, question, to deal with things like where's where are the where are the, the the hard cases that we need to figure out what to do, and we're very lucky uh, to have as a a colleague. Uh, a woman, Mary Gentilly. Mary, Mary has pioneered uh, a technique called giving voice to values. And Mary's idea here, uh, she for many years at the Harvard Business School, and then she creates this, this whole approach called giving voice to values uh, that says, look, a lot of times we know the right thing to do, but we got to figure out how to have the courage, how to, how to, how to, how to kind of how to do the right thing when we know the right thing. And Mary's actually uh, very famous around the world in ethics for helping companies uh, do those things. And, and she does a, a course here and is, is uh, a colleague here uh, at Darden for that. So again, we don't see ethics as separate from biz business. Uh, we see it as kind of built in even our finance folks uh, often talk about stakeholders. Uh, our accounting faculty uh, talks about sustainability. Uh, our operations faculty uh, does work on sustainable supply chain. Uh, and so for us, it, it's sort of throughout the curriculum because it's a background discipline. We have an institute called the Institute for Business in Society and we mean that that we have to see business as in society and we sponsor lots of uh, uh research pro prod projects and uh and some things for uh, students as as well for that so once again this is why i claimed earlier i had the best job in the world uh you know ethics is ser serious in fact let me just let me just, last year um students decided, some students decided they wanted to start a business ethics club. Uh, we have 130 students in the business ethics club. I just did a session last week uh, called Ethics 2.0. And there's no credit. It's a series of seminars that the students organized because they wanted to do more ethics. You know, Ethics 1.0 is the required course. Ethics 2.0 is this uh, student or organized thing. Now, I, I just don't know. I've taught at probably almost every business school in the world uh, at some level. And having students organize an Ethics 2.0 from their faculty is, uh, well, I just haven't seen it any, anywhere else. Uh, and that's something that, again, makes my job best in the world. Well, we've had the founder of the Business Ethics at Darden Club on the podcast, our admissions podcast, Experience Darden. And see my colleague Maggie Dodson's also shared a blog post about that. About okay, that club. great. Yeah, 100 and, 130 students. I didn't realize that was their uh, membership. Well, I think that's right. Pranav yeah. may, may know more about it than I, than, than I do, but uh, Pranav Dalmia and, and some other students were the founders of this. 
Well, good question here in the in the Q and A about. So yeah, there are by the way lots of great questions. Yeah. I I hope I get a chance to uh, uh, to have a lot of these folks as students. Yeah, lots and lots and lots of questions, which I think says a lot about people's engagement with what you're talking about. How do we create policies though that incentivize companies to think about you know purpose and in, in ethics? Is there a way well, to create create yeah. a framework? Here. So I, I I actually think framing things as the need to incentivize p people is is can be misleading. One of the things we know from research is um, if then incentives if you do this then you get that work in very uh, particular circumstances when the task is boring and repetitive and it's clear what the answer is where you don't know what those things are. So you need to uh, understand your own cognitive ability and kind of how that works. Uh, those if-then incentives actually uh, cause you to perform worse. What, what works in those cases is giving people a sense of autonomy, uh, a sense of mastery and mastering their environment uh, and a sense of purpose. And so I would say, how can we encourage companies to uh, develop their sense of purpose. Now, one of the ways to do that is just get the incentive crap out of the way. You know, so for instance, a lot of people have an incentive to manage earnings. Why? Because they, they do quarterly uh, uh, calls, they do quarterly calls that, uh, I've missed uh, a CEO friend of mine uh, missed uh, his quarterly uh, expectations by uh, you know two cents, uh, and his stock got hammered by forty percent. You know th that's an incentive that gets in the way. Uh, this actually was a high performance, uh, rather a high purpose company. Uh, now they didn't they didn't waver from their purpose, but the incentive was to do that. So if we can just get the disincentives out of the way, uh, I, I would really uh, be happy. Entrepreneurs don't start a business to make as much money as they can. Entrepreneurs start a business because they're on fire about something. Steve Jobs and Bill Gates on fire about the personal computer revolution. John Mackey on fire about uh, getting people healthy through food with Whole Foods. Um, you know, a friend of mine who runs a little investment company in Northern Virginia called A Motley Fool, uh, Tom and Dave Gardner, on fire about helping make the world better investors. Entrepreneurs are on fire about stuff. Now, look, of course, you got to make money. I'm not arguing money is not important. But it's, it's not what comes first. It's, it's, yeah, it's profits, but it's purpose. Without purpose, I mean, I don't think anybody wants on their tombstone made some profits. Most people want to do something so they change the world. That's what business is about. That's what the opportunity in business is about, is to figure out how to change the world. We have to be the generations, because there's more than one of us here, I'm, I'm old, I'm almost done. But, you know, so let me say, you have to be the generation makes business better. You have to be the generation that 
figures out a capitalism uh, or a system of business that uh, makes, you know, that's, that's, you want your kids to, to work in. Is there stuff that could be done? Sure. Look, I, I, I think the capital markets, the, the regulations around the capital mark markets, uh, where you could buy a company, bust it up, um, just if the stock went down, um, <clears throat> I, I, I think we have to rethink those. Uh, we might have to rethink who has voting rights and 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 those kinds of things. I, I don't have the answer, and I think it's dangerous. And the academics who say there's one answer for all businesses uh, are, are actually kind of da- dangerous. Uh, I'm not in favor of a kind of stakeholder reporting system as has been implemented in some parts of the EU uh, has has been um, proposed in the U.S. or something like mandatory uh, percentage go to CSR, as is the law in India. Uh, I, I think it's, there are too many easy ways around those things. And even though the, the, the laws may, may mean well, uh, there are too many uh, uh, consequences which we, can't, which we can't understand, and ultimately too many abuses. Well, Ed, I want to come back to this idea of businesses and, and purpose, particularly yeah. since the, you know, you look at what's, you know, being asked of business leaders and businesses these days, people want to know how they think about the yeah. world, how they view the world. Uh, what are your values as, as world events happen? And I think if you go back in time, it, businesses could perhaps you know, s- s- step away from that and be like, oh, oh, we don't have a perspective on that thing, or you might not hear as much from them. The world has yeah. changed, though. Um, how do you think of, about all of this? Are you surprised by this movement at all? Uh, no. Uh, again, uh, it was pretty easy to see that coming uh, a long time ago, because just open your eyes to the world. Um, and you had to open your eyes broader than just the U.S. business system, where a lot of people ignored it. Uh, and, and I think that's what's happened. That's in part driven by the Internet, uh, in part driven by uh, the fact that lots of people have iPhones or cell phones. Um, and so uh, I, I, I think that's a really good move, move, movement, a really, uh, you know, a really good thing uh, that's happened and will continue to grow. There are some downsides to it. The downsides to it is people acting on, uh, on information that's kind of bull or not real. Uh, there are downsides to it by people saying, well, I've done my research. Well, wait a minute. No, you haven't. You just read some articles with, by a couple of people on the internet that you agree with. That's not doing research. You know, so one of the things that we have to do in schools is we, and especially in MBA schools, we, we have to sort of ratchet down on critical thinking. On uh, We do a course, uh, Bobby Palmer and I do a, a, a course called Critical and Creative Thinking. Both of those things are important. Uh, if we can't sort out the wheat from the chaff in, in critical terms, then what we create will be questionable. On the other hand, if we don't 
think through pretty clearly uh, uh, how we're going to increase our creative imagination. Uh, I mean, look, let's be honest. The robots are going to do everything else. All we got as human beings is our creativity, you know? So uh, trying to figure out how you build that creative muscle. Uh, and again, I'm very proud of Darden. I've, I've been able to, and, and, and some of us have been able to teach courses on uh, ethics and literature, on uh, ethics and theater, uh, on uh, even did one on ethics and music uh, once. Uh, you know, we have a, a faculty student band the creative arts are kind of alive here, uh, in, in a way, and I and I hope they're, I hope they're going to grow, because the that creative muscle, if you don't use it, it, it will atrophy, uh, and we know from research that, for instance, if you play music fifteen minutes a day, it'll change your brain, change your brain so that you can literally be more, be more creative. And that's what we need. We need many, many more creative entrepreneurs experimenting with companies that will help solve things like global warming and, and inequality um, and poverty um, and make money doing so. Well, I want to pick up on a couple of things that you've accomplished recently, in addition to the books that, that you've published. You had a documentary come out not so long ago, uh, Fishing with Dynamite. How did you decide this is the right time to, to make a movie? Well, uh, again, uh, I, I, I didn't. Uh, Bobby Parmar, who's my uh, young colleague, uh, who I've known for many years, said, you know, if we, we, we really want to have an impact, we got to talk to people other than just business school students. Uh, and then he, then he I said, yeah, that's right. He said, so let's make a movie. And I went, yeah, right. I mean, that's a, but he, he managed to convince uh, a guy, uh, uh, you know, who had won an Academy award uh, for documentaries uh, to do it. So we made this movie called, Fishing with Dynamite. Uh, it looks at primarily three three companies. Um, uh, Lutz Lobster, which is a, a little startup that's now grown like crazy. Uh, the Container Store, it's about a billion dollar company. Uh, and Eastman Chemical, that's a multi-billion dollar company. And a lot of people uh, who we knew who, you know, are, are sort of pundits, business thinkers, uh, Etc. to look at the arguments for shareholder primacy versus stakeholder cat capitalism. M movies released, it's on, uh, I think it's on iTunes, it's on um, Amazon, uh, etc. Uh, it won some award at a film festival here. And uh, we've spent a lot of time uh, doing it. If if you come to Darden, you'll you'll be forced to see it in first year ethics. Uh, but it's a good it's a good vehicle for for discussion, I think. And and Bobby was right. It was I was not so gung ho on making the movie, but as usual, uh, if you listen to people you work with, you know they radically improve your ideas. 
So he gets the credit absolutely for that. And Paul and Paul Wagner, who's the director. You have a podcast now? Um, podcast. So this oh, one, man. this one, this one again comes from not from me. I, I don't have any good ideas. It it comes from my son, Ben, who's 35. He lives in Nashville, uh, where I'm going uh, next week. And uh, um, he's a musician uh, and a writer. And he said to me, Dad, you know, if you want people to, to if you want to broaden this idea of stakeholder thinking, you know, to my generation, you better do a podcast. And so he and I created a company called Stakeholder Media. And we started doing something called the Stakeholder Podcast. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I, I, I could do kind of one of these a month. That'd be fine. And he says, no, we're going to do one a week. So we've done, there are about 65 of these up now. It's on all the podcast uh, platforms. You'd have to put in the Stakeholder Podcast or the Stakeholder Podcast with Ed Freeman. And you know, it's really great. We've, we've gotten uh, uh, lot, lots of, we do it just as a conversation, not a set of questions or anything. Uh, and and uh, there's some CEOs, uh, there's some uh, professors, professors at Darden, professors around the world. The good thing about being 69 is you know a lot of people. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I've found that uh, I, I actually enjoy uh, uh, being on uh, your side of the mic, Brett. Uh, I, I've always been on this side where I'm being interviewed or, or I'm the one making the presentation or I'm talking about my ideas. Uh, gee, what a pleasure it is to be on the other side uh, and think about, about that. So uh, it's been a lot of fun and uh, um, and there's a fair amount of pressure. Uh, ben, my son, is the producer. And so we're cranking. Last week, we had uh, Charles Hampton Turner on. Charles is a, a legend in management consulting, uh, etc. Um, and I think the week before, we had uh, uh, a guy, Dean Kramer, who's the chief of staff at DART. Uh, so if you, if you look through those, you'll see uh, a fair number of people with Darden affiliations. And if you want to find out more about the school, that's a, that's a, that's a pretty good source. Well, Ed, I imagine you, you talk to business leaders all the time and they say, look, here's where we are with our company. Here's where I'd like to get, how do we create space for this conversation? What are, what are things that we can you know, kind of create this yeah. momentum around uh, changing the conversation uh, yeah. within, within the business? Well, it's not, um, there's no formula. Uh, given if I just think for a minute, there are other frameworks, but if I think for a minute about the framework uh, in the power of and, uh, you know, there are at least five ways you can start this. Many companies need to start with the idea of purpose to kind of rediscover their purpose. I worked with a company recently, pretty large international company, and the kicker was how many people ever had an argument about what our old purpose meant or used the old purpose statement as a way to do something? And the answer was no one. So it had absolutely, it was just words. Whereas what they 
thought they ought to move towards was created a great deal of tension in the com company, and that was good. Some companies can't start with that. Um, I remember a CEO uh, who, I, who I grew to like very much. They, um, his team wanted to start with, okay, when he took over, what are the, what are the new values? What, what are we going to do? What are the new values? And he said, look, we got to make this a, a, a kick-ass place to work, and we got to give great customer service, and we don't do either of those right now. So let's work on that. And when we get to there, then we can talk about what we stand for. So for him, the way into this was thinking about the systems and processes. Because purpose doesn't live in the purpose statement. It lives in the systems and processes. If we were to say, as we do, you know, the Darden School stands for uh, I don't remember exactly what the words are, but my version uh, of it is developing responsible leaders to make the world a better place. And we had no conversations about that, about the systems and processes that support that. I, it, it wouldn't be worth the paper it's printed on. So it's digging into the systems and processes that work sometimes. Sometimes companies kind of got the purpose right, but they really screw up how they interact with stakeholders. They just aren't engaged enough or they're engaged from the standpoint of, we know what they want. Well, they need to start there. You know, sometimes companies have had serious uh, ethical breaches and they need to start there. And sometimes companies have issues where they haven't paid enough attention to communities, to society, and they need to start there. So I, I think it depends on, on the problem a company's trying to solve. This, this is why it's hard to say there's a kind of one size fits all for everybody uh, to, to move to stakeholder capitalism because not all companies are alike. Not all companies are in the same place. They don't all measure how they're doing with stakeholders in the same way. Uh, and, and all that's great. That's why business is, is so... Terrific. Uh, there's so much variation, so much diversity. Well, Ed, you mentioned creativity. Uh, you're a big music fan um, and, you, and you play music. Um, tell us a little bit more of, about that. Are there any artists you particularly love? Any, any records you particularly love? Yeah, well, the, you know, one of the my questions I use on the podcast a lot is... Uh, you're going to a desert island. You only got five records. You know what? What five are 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 there? Thank God nobody has asked me my five yet, uh, but I actually have them. Uh, it's clear that it's uh, live at Fillmore East with the Almond Brothers. That's the best live rock and roll album ever. Uh, it's uh, live at the Royal with BB King, which was the best live blues album uh, ever. It's something by Bob Marley. Um, Legends will do, but uh, there might be a better. Uh, Bob Marley album. It's uh, Yo-Yo Ma playing the Bach cello concertos, which is the most beautiful piece of music I've, 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 I've one of the most beautiful pieces of music I've ever heard. Uh, and it's Miles Davis kind of blue. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I listen to everything from Willie Nelson to hip hop, to Bach, to 
uh, to the Almond Brothers, to my favorite band uh, these days is the Tedeschi Trucks Band. If you don't know them or haven't heard of them, uh, listen to a song called Midnight in Harlem. Um, and it's a absolutely beautiful, beautiful song. And they have a, a 12 piece, uh, full blues band and Derek trucks is probably the best guitar player on the planet. Uh, so, you know, we have fun. Uh, we started 2003. It's been going on almost 20 years. Uh, blues jam, which is a, a band with Darden faculty and students, uh, and we always have two or three students uh, a year. We've had some just incredible musicians and singers uh, over the year. That's been a real privilege to play with. And, you know, you want to get to, if, if you want to get to know faculty, play music with them. You want to get to know students, play music with them. Uh, that's a thing that might seem incredibly unusual at other schools, but it's really not unusual here. Uh, Darden is a real community. You know, most of us teach here because uh, we like students, you know, a lot of lot of people, if they weren't at business schools, they'd be in business. If, if I wasn't at a, uh, here, I'd be teaching like eighth grade math uh, or, or, or something like that. So teaching, even though I've, you know, I would say I've written uh, as much or more than the next guy, probably too much for my own good. Um, uh, teaching is, is, and being, being with the students and getting to know them, uh, is, is, is it. I, I just spent yesterday with a former student of mine from the class of 91. Uh, and he's the CEO of a major manufacturer, uh, now watching him grow and develop over the last 30 years. Is, is, there's, 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 there's nothing that's more, uh, satisfying than, than, than uh, having the students come back and tell you about what they're, what they're doing. Well, Ed, one last question for you. Thank yeah. you so much for your time um, and, and all your incredible insights today. Um, any final words for our prospective students tuning in here? Any, anything you'd want them to know about Darden or take with them as, a, as they go forth into the world? If, if you don't want to be a part of a community, if what you want is to kind of do your thing, get your MBA and go somewhere else, but not really interact with people and professors and, and the community of Charlottesville, this is probably not the place for you. Uh, if you want to have an intense two years uh, that, that uh, will make you feel alive, this is a terrific place. It's a very, very high energy place, uh, a place that, that I love. I would never go uh, any, anywhere else. Uh, and, um, you know, again, we, we've got to be the generations that make business better. That's, that's what it is. And that's, that's kind of what we're about. And that was my interview with Ed Freeman a professor here at the Darden School of Business in the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship area. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.